The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome back, folks. It's Jason Poblet again with the Global Liberty Alliance. Thank you for joining us for another podcast. We are coming to you as, as lately always, right across the river from Washington, D.C. in historic Alexandria, Virginia, right in Old Town next to the courthouse here, the old courthouse. Today we have a fun topic. We've mixed two very interesting topics, Cuba and Bitcoin. And uh, for me, we could probably go hours talking about this, but we don't have that much time. So we're going to pack a lot into this episode. We have with us Fernando VR. He's a crypto entrepreneur, uh, uh, pretty much a guy who's mixing a lot of interesting topics, not just Cuba, who's making a living and finding and paving a new way forward, mixing liberty and uh, maximizing as much as we can on the time we have on this great earth, but also touching the Cuba rail, which is something that not a lot of brave, even the bravest of Bitcoin entrepreneurs dare not touch. How are you, Fernando? How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. And you were talking about being uh, across from Alexandria. I'm here across from New York City, capital of the world, but it's also now becoming the communist capital of the United States. So, you know, it's a, it's a little unnerving right now. <laughs> well, you know, you guys had a I think you guys had, you have President Biden going there today and everything, I think, to survey some storm damage, right? Right. He's going to Manville, New Jersey. And I think what's waiting for him, I don't think he even understands what's there. I've seen a lot of, you know, liberty groups that are going to do protests and, and really get their voice out because above a lot of other things, you know, you had Hurricane Ida, but there's still issues going on in the Garden State, New York and everywhere else. So, you know, it's it's the liberty of uh, protesting. And that's what, what the great founders gave us. So they're going to exercise that today. That's awesome. You know, talk about protesting in Cuba, the Communist Party last week. We'll get into that in a bit. Sure. They're telling everybody in Cuba now, you can't go near the capital, not even in peaceful protests. And you can't wow. you can't even go and uh, petition your government. We'll get back to that in a minute. But before we jump to Bitcoin in Cuba, um, today's a big day in Bitcoin, too, though. Today is the we're recording this on, on the day that El Salvador has um, pretty much introduced legally cryptocurrency as legal tender i mean for those of you who don't follow bitcoin this is a pretty big deal um why do you think uh i think the price now has gone down again but what do you think this day means like why is this for those who don't know anything about bitcoin why is it such a big and important development even though by the way i'm not a big fan of governments getting in the middle of any of this but tell us quickly why you think this such a big day and uh, why we should be optimistic for the future True. And thank you again for the introduction, Jason. Um, so what I think that this is and, and why this is monumental is you have the first sovereign nation in the planet that's accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. And the reason why that's so big is because it gives people an option that they never had outside of their own country's current monetary system. And I think that that's so huge because 
I mean, for anybody who's listening to this living in the United States, you know, it might not be a big deal. You know, you have a bank account, you have investments in the stock market, you have your, your retirement. So things, you know, could be better, right? But they've been pretty stable and the U.S. economy is the best economy in the world. But for countries like El Salvador that do not have a, a huge amount of people even banked, this is big because the government is now saying we will accept it as legal tender. You can pay your taxes in it. Any store can accept it. And I think that the adoption, and that's always been a big thing about Bitcoin. It's always been about, you know, when is it going to get to mass adoption? I think this is the first drop in the bucket to lead to that avenue of, of mass adoption, because now you have a sovereign nation that's testing this out. I think Bukele um, issued a decree where he was going to give $30 worth of Bitcoin to anybody who downloaded the Chiva wallet, which is their mm -hmm. own proprietary governmental wallet. Um, I don't think you need, you know, a, a one specific wallet for Bitcoin, and we can get into that. But the fact that the government is even, you know, pushing this on people, well, not really pushing it per se, but even offering that option, and you don't have to download this wallet, you don't have to use Bitcoin as legal tender, but to give that option, I think it's going to be massive for, for El Salvador, for that region, which desperately needs it, and and hopefully for the world. You know, it's it's, it's interesting that, you know, we're, we're throwing a lot of terms out here, folks, and we're going right. to unpack, we're going to unpack a little bit of that in a minute, and then we'll get into the Cuba component of it, but it's fascinating how and for those of you who haven't read the white paper, so we we're going we're to give you a link to a lot of background material that I think if your folks are even remotely interested in this, you have to start with the white paper on Bitcoin. But, you know, when you throw those terms around, like decentralized digital currency, no central banks, user-to-user, uh, -user, peer peer-to-peer Bitcoin networks, no intermediaries, it makes a lot of people nervous here in Washington. And it's been in in, in the... It's been stewing there. You know, I've been living here since the early 90s. I moved up here from Miami. Wow. And I spent time here almost. I was here pre-internet, basically, right? I mean, think about it. We weren't using the internet to buy stuff. Well, the, I'm, the, the fax machine was probably the, the highest <laughs> level of technology. You're making me feel old, man. But no, that's okay. I use a fax. <laughs> I still use a fax. Believe it or not, you still use a typewriter every now and then. Uh, but, um, oh, wow. Yeah, well, you never know. Uh, we'll, we can get into privacy issues later. But no, That's seriously, when, when you moved up here, uh, when I moved up here, my wife and I came up here and you know, I worked in the private sector, worked in the government. We didn't have the Internet. And I could tell you back then uh, when the Internet came on the scene and I, and I was on the Hill back then, mm -hmm. there were members who were who would resist email. Wow. Okay? They didn't want email. They didn't understand it. They didn't care. This was up on Capitol Hill. And remember back, remember the first big, the I love you virus, you know, the whole thing that. Yes. The whole yes. I love you. Yeah. That, it was on AOL, I think. It was on AOL. And that right. thing brought, it was, it was a disaster on the Hill. Everybody was freaking out. And that was like, um, it was big news back then. Now we kind of look back and laugh at that. It wasn't really all that long ago. Right. But the reason why I mention it is because you fast forward to where we are now. And I can't, it, you try and explain Bitcoin and any of those terms, digital currency, I was having a conversation last week with a very prominent journalist from a big publication, I won't use the name, who was laughing when I said, this is, a, this is an awesome store of value. And they were, mm. laugh, they were laughing. Oh, you can't, you know, that's impossible. You know, Bitcoin plunging all the time. Hell, it's probably plunging right now. That's not a very stable platform. For those of us who, who are fans of Bitcoin, we're okay with volatility if you're, if you're playing the long game. But what do you tell people when, they, when in policymakers uh, uh, people who have no idea what this stuff's all about, but they're making decisions that can impact this market. What, how do you unpack all this? Because when you go to a place like Cuba, that's a totalitarian police state, 
where anything technology is viewed as intrusive, the challenge has become even more, more pressing. But how do you hear in your business and to, let's say, members of Congress that may be listening to this and staff who I know listen to this or people in the Biden administration who I know will listen to this, what do you tell them when they know absolutely nothing about this currency and sure. cryptocurrencies generally? For sure. And, and it's a perfect you know, topic of discussion. You spoke about the internet and your history with it, because this is the internet of money. And I'll unpack that in a second, but think of what the internet did to information. Everything was a very siloed, um, I mean, I'm sorry, all of the information was very siloed, right? If you wanted to know the news of the day, you had to be read the paper, you had to buy the paper, or, you know, even in the early nineties, obviously you got your news through cable, but what the internet allowed was that decentralization of information so that anybody can put up information and, Typically, the best information is the one that's going to get the most traffic, and that's you know a business now, right? Like newspapers have made their entire business on clickbait and, and, and internet traffic. But back then, who would have thought that this was going to be what it was today? I mean, there was a select few that did, but to regulate it as it was then and, and, and put all those restrictions, if they had done that, would have hampered that industry. And think about all the trillions of dollars that have come from the internet. And you mentioned, you know, before people being hesitant to even use email on Capitol Hill. Well, now they have no choice but to. So mm. it was the internet was something that was so unstoppable. And what I tell people about Bitcoin and the way that I could best describe it is the following. Um, think of having, um, or, or think of the, the, the central bank, your money, right? You go to your Chase app, Bank of America app, you see your money on there, you have a few thousand dollars, you have a savings account, great. But where is that money really, right? Is it in a paper in the bank? No, everybody knows that it isn't. And in fact, banks do fractionalized banking, which they don't hold any money sometimes. And what ends up happening is that if everything is digital in that sense, now, what I tell people is think about the following. Think about every Bitcoin in existence, right? And I think there's about 13 or 14 million now. And, and finally, there will be, once the, the protocol completes in the year 2140, 21 million. And that's the number that people should really focus on because that would, what, what that 21 million allows, that protocol that was created in that white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto allowed it to be deflationary. The currency went from literally zero being traded online on Craigslist for pizza at one point to now being an asset that's $50,000 worth at the, you know, at the time of this podcast, just a little less, it dipped a bit, but that growth in the last 10 years has been the best performing asset in the world, better than any asset on Wall Street, better than any asset in, you know, better than gold, better than silver, better than any type of, you know, uh, uh, store of value that's, that's, that's based on something that's hard. So with that, you think to yourself, okay, well, where's the future lying for this, right? I mean, Bitcoin could be worth a million dollars in five years. In fact, when I went to Cuba in 2015, and this is a good time maybe to talk about that too, um, I sent a transaction um, from Cuba to the United States. And that transaction was $20 at the time. I looked back, uh, this was recently, because I'm like, wow, that $20 that I sent in Bitcoin, what would it be worth now? And the value was $3,500. Uh, $3, so that $20 within six years became... $3,500. And how? Because of that volatility, because of the deflationary aspect of it, where you can't make more Bitcoin. The federal government can, can go ahead with the central bank and print more money. In fact, they did it during COVID. They had all these repo markets that they funded. And I think there was one head of one of these uh, uh, state banks that said, 
yeah, we don't have to worry about it. You know, we can just indiscriminately print money. And I think that alarmed a lot of people even then, and that was a year ago. And I think now you're starting to see Wall Street coming into this industry and saying, no, we want a piece of it, right? We want to go ahead and, and, and have uh, on, on assets on their books, but as well as offer it to their own clients. And I think you're seeing that transition right now before, you know, the internet, right? Where, you know, you still use a fax machine, but nobody uses a fax machine in, in their day-to-day -day lives unless you have to. And I think it's going to come to a point where people are not going to work with a, a, a physical bank unless they really have to. And that's going to take time. But what Bitcoin allowed personally for me was that level of education and, and, and knowledge about what's really happening with, with my money and, and how can I leverage this information for the future. You know, I, I think Fernando's being very humble and I'm not going <laughs> to let him get away with this because he is the guy who completed the first Bitcoin transaction from Cuba. That's a pretty big deal. So well, I, I want to yeah. congratulate you for that. It's the first publicly verifiable one. I'm sure there's been others, but exactly. Uh, and and there's, there's a lot of interesting folks in Cuba that I and you and I deal with and uh, who we know are exploring this thing, not in the government. Uh, before we get to Cuba, though, I want folks to understand a little better. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a noob at all this. I have been reading, get a load of this, folks. I've been reading about Bitcoin for more than five years now. And I still don't understand everything there is to figure out about this thing. There's so many moving parts to this that ultimately, yes, it's a simple concept. But for those of us who have half of our foot, at least I have half my foot in the bricks and mortar world and the other half in this new world, which I really love. And of course, as a conservative, it's hard to get my foot out of the old world that quickly. Um, I find the potential for this amazing. And the people who've come up with this, who work on this daily, you never hear about these people. Uh, they're doing some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, they're trying to get folks in, play, in parts of the world who've never had a bank account, right. who, who, who've never interacted with the internet even in some, some places. Unbanking, you know, getting people unbanked, getting people, getting people access and freedom and that's why for a place like Cuba, for what Fernando did, uh, it may not seem, it may seem trivial now, but it's a, it was a really big deal and you should be congratulated for it. And the fact that you want to use this to leverage and help the Cuban people has the potential, by the way, all the money used, foreign tax, excuse me, U.S. taxpayer money that has been invested in Cuba democracy programs and aid programs, forget it. This is where I think it's at. Uh, this is go, gets beyond the government's focuses on people, uh, tries to teach folks to be independent, live on their own. They don't need the government, right? They, they, they don't need the government, which is the beauty of this. What are your views, though, of the role in government in any of this, whether it's the American government, Salvadoran government? Because ultimately, we don't need right. government's permission to do this. And that's the part of it that kind of people scratch their head and say, what? It's kind of also the part when you tell them, uh, you know, there's only there's a very limited supply of bitcoins. There will only be 21 million bitcoins ever, right. ever, and that people like this. So, what are you talking about? It's impossible. Uh, how does that work? Tell people briefly, because uh, that's an important conversation to have as we head into the Cuba pathway here now. Why is this so important, and why does it have the potential to become kind of something that will pretty much? I think there's a lot of black swans coming, right? And how will this? for the United States, and then we'll jump into Cuba in a minute. Sure, I, I think that the first thing people have to realize is, you know, you have to do your research, right? And and one of the, the tenets of 
you know, this Bitcoin cryptocurrency community is don't trust verify. So anybody that's listening, don't take my word for anything that I'm about to say, just do your own research. And Sound like sure a lawyer. That, you know, I'm trying, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin has taught me a lot of things and, and law is one of them. It's taught me finance. It's taught me um, just in general about liberty. And, and going back to your point about government, the genesis of, of Bitcoin started right after the financial collapse in 2008. Uh, that's when Satoshi Nakamoto and a group of cyberpunks got together on forums and created this Bitcoin protocol. And, and what they did was they came together and they said, how do we create a money that, or, or, an, or a, a store of value that's out of the government's hands that they can't print more of, and that could be something worth it in the future? And how do we make it secure? And how do we make it long lasting? And I think for the most part, and you mentioned it before, anybody who's listening, please read that white paper. It's very techy. Um, but I, there's other books about it that I think will give you that that aspect of why this is important. And the, the reason why is because of that, going back to that financial collapse, you had a lot of these banks like Lehman Brothers that were too big to fail and the government bailed them out. Um, it was Lehman and a bunch of, I think actually Lehman Brothers went out of business, but they may mm -hmm. have received money. Um, so you have a, a system where now you have companies and banks that are too big to fail because they're so tied to not just the U.S. financial market, to the global financial market. And I think I remember watching a documentary on, on Secretary Paulson and during that time and how, you know, he was just going insane thinking of how they're going to fix it. And the way that they went about it was a way that I think that anybody who loves liberty and understands free markets and understands, you know, laissez-faire, uh, you know, that Austrian school of, of economics, and I'll get into that in a second too. Uh, once you understand that, you realize that no, nothing is too big to fail. And the fact that the U.S. government came in and bailed these companies out, and they did it by basically printing money just to to, to keep the financial system afloat, that caused a major problem. And a lot of people felt it. I felt it because I came out of college during that time, and I was working at a job. And unbeknownst to me, what was going on within the 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 few months after that happened, I was laid off. Um, with a bunch of actually top executives. I was actually working for ABC News at the time. Um, and what ended up happening was you, you had to learn how what, what happened, number one, and then how can you avoid this happening to you again? And I think you know Satoshi Nakamoto designed that perfect system. But this goes even back further. I think that there was a, uh, and you can find this on YouTube, a clip of Frederick Hayek talking about this very thing. And this was back in the 80s, in 1984. Mm -hmm. um, and he was saying that, you know, we need to get money out of the hands of, of government. Um, we have to take it out nonviolently, uh, but it has to be taken out in a way that's very creative and something that they can never reach. And that's it. And the Bitcoin protocol is that because what it, what it is, it's a protocol on the internet, right? So you can't have Bitcoin without the internet. So that this is the next precursor to the internet, but it's the internet of money. Right? So this becomes a decentralized currency that you can go ahead and trade freely with anybody. Um, you know, now there's regulations in the states and you, know, you have to report when you sell it and, and you have to pay taxes on it, obviously, which you know, nobody, nobody here is, is doubting that. Right? You, you, know, you have to follow the, the US governmental law, but at the same time, it operates like cash. So if I have a friend and I want to buy, you know, let's say, a car from him or you know, any other type of transaction that I want to barter and they're willing to accept this, why can't that happen, right? If they're willing to accept this asset and they place value on it, then I should be free to transfer to them for whatever I want in return. That's the basic free market. And I think what you have is when you have these governments that get into this, right? And you had examples of it all over the world. You have locally with Venezuela, which is you know Cuba's 
you know, stepchild at this point. Uh, you have it with China. Uh, and you have it with other authoritarian governments that are now looking into this and saying, how could, number one, we capitalize? But the other really scary part that we could talk about is how are they going to use this uh, technology, technology to leverage the, the tyranny that, they, that they've created and that kind of uh, censorship that they want? And, and Cuba has a, a huge history of it that I know, more so than, than any other place that, that I can see in this hemisphere. But in terms of that, that freedom... If the government gets involved and starts restricting you to have that fee- freedom, then that poses a problem for liberty, right? Because yeah. now you cannot have a free exchange without the government interfering. And I think that that's a big issue. And, and when Cuba passed these new laws, um, and we can touch that topic right now about the whole crypto regulation that they just passed, I, I completely believe that this is not what Bukele did in, in El Salvador. This is a way to leverage this technology to create more censorship and more governmental controls because nowhere in this in these decrees that they mentioned anything about Bitcoin. And I think that the world is scared about it because nobody can control it. And um, well, I could keep talking about law and economics for the rest of the show, but right. we're not. We're going to break. <laughs> and, and there's a lot here also you got into that. Folks, we're going to give you links. We want you to read this. And this is not legal advice what we're giving you. Uh, we're, we're not telling you to go out and buy crypto or do anything, or we're not saying it's okay to do certain things in Cuba. You're going to learn now why. Bottom line is, it's becoming a regulatory. You know, the, the creature is coming, as I call the the. You know, we're in the belly of the beast here in Virginia. Right. We're very close to the federal government. We've been seeing this regulatory hydra coming for a while, and there's a lot of debate within the crypto community and the Bitcoin community about what the government can and can't do. The bottom line, it's here, and the only legal caution I'll give you is consult a lawyer. Uh, do not base any decision, legal decision on Bitcoining or running nodes or anything like that from anything you hear on this call, uh, on this podcast. Talk to a lawyer before you do anything, or at least educate yourself. It's important that you take personal responsibility. And that's uh, uh, very important because you have to understand what you're doing. It can be very risky. You could lose a lot of money. Uh, so get out there, read, consult a lawyer. But jumping to Cuba, and, and jumping to the regulation and the schemes that we see out there. I agree with you. This is not like El Salvador because El Salvador is technically a free country. It has a divided government. Uh, there's will, you know, there's w- the will of the people control. Uh, there's rule of law, not rule by law. Uh, Cuba is a totally different creature. It's a police state, has been a police state since the 1960s. It has one of the toughest, if not the toughest, uh, Stasi-like, if you think what was what was happening behind the Iron Curtain was bad, this is just as bad. It is modeled on a Soviet uh, police state system. So is its legal system. So is the way the constitution is drafted. It has a legacy constitution that runs to the Cold War and the Soviets. And there's only one big telephone company controlled by the, the Ministry of Interior. And everything in there is you know, there's no due process, everything is monitored. So this does present challenges. Uh, It's not like moving in there and, you know, Cuba can say they're going to recognize that. I think what Cuba, and I think you said this, is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what Cuba recognizes and doesn't recognize. Uh, Cuban people don't need permission from the state to do this. But what special challenges, I mean, do you see about introducing uh, this beyond the education component how is it different from El Salvador uh, in, in, in the crypto space? And what can we start doing 
today. And then we're going to talk about sanctions. Let's, let's leave sanctions aside for a minute. Sure. And let's just focus on Cuba, the island, what it is, and what are some of the challenges you see. And then we'll talk about the sanctions here in a minute. For sure. Um, I think in terms of the challenges in Cuba with promoting this type of technologies, number one, you need the internet to work all the time, right? If, if any store or you know small business owner, because there is small business owners in Cuba, the government has allowed it um, since the reforms that Raul Castro did, uh, which I'm not gloating about those reforms. I'm just saying the, the truth, like there's entrepreneurs that are on the island that have their own you know, business, right? And they receive money. And there is a black market that operates in Cuba, which I think your listeners should know. I mean, this is, you know, what's actually sustaining the government is that the fact that there is a black market where people are freely able to transact. Um, but in terms of the challenges, like I mentioned, it's the internet. Um, we need an unfeathered free internet for, for Bitcoin or for anything to really, that's technology-based and based on the internet to, to, to really grow. And I think what you saw in these July 11th protests that happened um, was that first 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 uh, firing salvo, where I felt that that movement that was organized was organized in a decentralized manner, and it happened with I think somebody posting up a message on Facebook because you know they humans are very astute, they get behind these firewalls and they use virtual private networks VPNs to to do this, and they get on Facebook and they get on WhatsApp and they get on Telegram. Um, and they have been for a little while there since Cuban opened up to the internet in 2015. But the issue is that if you have that censored internet, that they could, you know, block any type of transaction, they could block any wallet um, from transacting. So that's going to be massive, right? To get to get that free access to the internet, it's not impossible because even before I went to Cuba in 2015, and people were were actually transacting, what they would actually do, which is insane when you really think about it, um, they would go ahead and download the actual. Bitcoin transaction, the, the, the exact, the, the ledger, I'm sorry, on a node, and they would hook it up online like once a week. And that's when they would process transactions. So even when the restrictions were were really rampant, they figured out a way. And I think even okay, now- Fernando, yeah. hey, Fernando, let me ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but tell folks what a, um, you know, what's a node? Oh, for those, a for node- For, is, those, who, for yeah. those who don't know what a node is, what's, what's a node? For sure. So a node is basically any type of computer that's on the Bitcoin network that can confirm transactions and 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 have the entire ledger of every single Bitcoin transaction on their computer. That way, everybody in the world is operating off the same same ledger, basically. And, so, what's a le- and for folks who don't know, what's given a, a quick a quick rundown on what the ledger is, so if you for sure. know what that is. So your bank has a ledger, right? The, the times that if I sent you money, Jason, and or you sent me, there is a bank has a ledger of the, in, the transactions that come in and out, right? So if there's a transaction that comes in and out, it's recorded. Now, what a node does is it allows you to see that transaction on the network itself and see that it was confirmed. So you can know that that transaction is part of the longer chain of transactions called the blockchain. And that's what really creates the stable network, right? When you have you know, literally hundreds, if not millions of transactions piled up on top of each other, that creates the the basis for the network to, to live on because there's verified transactions that have happened, the two parties have agreed that money was sent and money was received. And what is, let me just fire off a few more terms. What, sure. when, you hear, when, when people hear this, this phrase stacking sats, what does Ooh. that mean? So very interesting. And, and, and I get this a lot because you know, when I'm talking to friends or, or colleagues about this in the space, um, mostly anybody who's really new, they're like, "What? Well, what is this stacking sats?" The the brilliance of the Bitcoin protocol, and and I think a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies then after, like Ethereum and and you know a lot of others have have adopted, is 
this way that you can fractionalize a coin into eight decimal places, right? So those eight decimal places, like I don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin if I wanted to invest in it. I could buy $100 worth, which would be 0 .001, you know, one. I'm not exact right now, but that's, that's kind of the theory, right? You don't have to buy an entire Bitcoin, you could buy a fraction. So that fraction is the SAT, that last denomination, that, that, that last digit in, in that eight decimal um, denomination is the SAT. Right. And when, when people are talking about stacking sats, it's basically any time that you are wanting to save money, even if it's ten dollars, put it into Bitcoin, let it grow, because if you start stacking this, you can start reaping the rewards of what's going to inevitably happen, which is the growth of the protocol and the growth of uh, the price itself. I mean, like I said before, it's the best performing asset of the past 10 years. I don't understand why anybody would think that it's not going to be the best performing asset of the next 10 years or the next 20 <laughs> I, I, is it true we're at the we're at the I hear a lot of Bitcoin experts and cryptocurrency experts say we're at the we're at the beginning, not even the first inning of right. this potential boom. So short some advance in quantum computing or something that we don't know about, right. we may never know about. We're, we're at the very beginning of this, right? Right. I mean, this is we talked about this before, fax machines and all that and, and the Internet for what it was. If you had to equate any any time to this time, it's what the Internet was in, let's say, 1995 or 1996, where you started seeing people building companies and enterprises off this technology. Right. And then you saw the ultimate you know, thing with you know, the, the collapse. There was a bubble hit there that happened with the Internet bubble because a lot of these things got overvalued. A lot of these companies got overvalued, but some stayed the course. And, and Amazon is being a, a good example of that. Uh, they started off selling books, right? And they were using this technology very early on. And they're the, probably the biggest company in, in, in the United States at this point, not in terms of market cap, but in terms of use. I mean, who doesn't use an, you know, their Amazon account? Who doesn't get things delivered right now? So they built that entire process off the internet in the early stages. So what, what I feel that's super exciting right now and, and why this is also kind of crazy is because you have so many companies, so many people getting involved in this industry right now that it's hard to lose sight of, you know, what's what. And I think you were talking before about other issues at hand. And, and the, the things that concern me, I, I mentioned the internet. The other thing that I want to mention is the scamming that, that happens, mm. where a lot of people, because they're new into this and haven't done the research, and maybe they heard it through a friend, you know, you have to do your homework at the end of the day, right? And you have to know what you're getting yourself into, and you have to understand what are the risks. And there's been a myriad of risks. Going back to the original Mt. Gox, and, and anybody who's listening can research that, where there was an exchange, one of the first Bitcoin exchanges that were created. There was a company that was a trading card company out in Japan. It was not even designed for, for this type of technology. They got hacked, and I think about $800 million was stolen. So that put a hamper on this. And the other things that happen now is somebody will receive an email. You know, you have the, all these phishing links where somebody will click it's promising them, hey, you know, click this link and I'll send you 100 Bitcoin. You know, I, you have to be somewhat naive to do that. But I, quite frankly, sometimes it looks really good. And I've seen emails and I've seen messages where a link can can look really official. And it's until you actually do your due diligence and research, you realize, well, that that is actually a scam. And the scam becomes that, you know, or, or the promises of, oh, send me, you know, 0 0.005 Bitcoin and I'll send you two. A lot of people did fall for that. And, and why it's not something that should be taken lightly is because that is people's livelihoods. So I could just imagine anybody who's, you know, listening to this or, or has invested in the past falls for one of that. You could lose, you know, your entire life savings if, if you're really a big proponent of this. So that's why it's important to, to be wary of scammers. Um, 
also the security aspect of this entire thing. So when you receive a Bitcoin wallet or even a lot of cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, Litecoin, um, you know, I'll go down the list. They've all adopted this basic security protocol, which is you have a set of secret keys. So for example, I have a, a Bitcoin wallet. I have it on my phone. When I open up a Bitcoin wallet for the first time, there's a prompt that says, save these 12 words. Those 12 words are your private key. In order for a transaction to initiate, those keys have to be basically on the device itself um, in order for you to send that transaction. So they call it signing the transaction, right? And a lot of these mobile wallets do it. But for example, let's say you lose your phone. So does that mean you lose you know, your wallet? Not necessarily because you have those 12 words, right? And sometimes it's 24. But the, the whole theory is you're supposed to safeguard those words. A lot of people, I haven't gotten to this point, a lot of people even memorize them, right? Wow. Because if you can memorize that, then that's the ultimate security, right? Um, if you have it in a piece of paper, you know, a piece of paper can 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 burn, it can get lost. Um, but if it's in your mind, you know, you have that forever, if you can remember it, obviously. So that's the other thing that that I feel that people should be wary of. It's it's the 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 security that you do need to be on top of. And I, and that's the thing that I fear with a lot of people because a lot of people use the same passwords for a lot of websites. And that's gonna prove a problem if if you are investing in, in this and you do kind of misplace your keys. And I think that happened, you know, there's, there's many articles about that. I think somebody recently tried to recover his lost wallet and he invested early on into Bitcoin and they lost what's the equivalent right now of I think a hundred or $150 million. Oh, so yeah. that, that would be uh, devastating to say the least. Well, it's, I'm glad we're talking regs. We'll jump back to mm -hmm. Cuba full, full, sure. full, full bore in a minute. But there's also the part of Cuba and sanctions that we haven't talked about. Right. Folks, if you're listening to this and you don't remember anything about the sanctions discussion is the following. There's an embargo on Cuba. There are a lot of exceptions to the embargo and some scholars and lawyers and sanction experts as a matter of policy believe it's an embargo in name only. And I, I'm one of those people. I think it's to call this an embargo. Legally, it is. Practically, it's so full of loopholes that it doesn't operate as an embargo, but there's an embargo. And you have to be very careful. Consult a lawyer. And how many times am I going to tell you this? Consult a lawyer, folks, before you go down this path. Uh, last year, um, I'm sorry, this year, uh, early in February, I think it was, a company called BitPay, uh, one of the largest cryptocurrency payment processors, agreed to settle with the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control a bunch of apparent violations on US sanctions, including Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. For those of you who don't know what OFAC is, it's called the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Uh, they are the chief enforcers of US economic sanctions on the, in the world. So the, these folks are, are the sanctions police. They do a very good job, though, of uh, the good people. I know some folks will disagree with me on this, but uh, there are policy equities out there that have to happen. And the majority of the world is not subject to sanctions, all right? So it's not as if this is some horrible, insurmountable problem if you're a business person. But if you're going to do this type of work in, in a place like Cuba, you need to do your regulatory homework. And BitPay, we don't know exactly what, you know, the details of all of this. And we don't know how much of it was Cuba or North Korea and Iran. These civil penalty uh, uh, notices are very vague. That's the way they're done. Um, uh, but it's an, it, it was kind of a, a warning, I believe, from Treasury that, hey, they're looking at this. 
Uh, they're going to keep looking at it. If you think they're not uh, got something coming to you, they, they're, they're not going to stop looking at it. So in this environment, and by the way, there are exceptions, I believe, that are carved out certain things you can do to engage in this sort of work in Cuba, but you have to, I believe, uh, have a roadmap here that takes not only the sanctions into account, but financial laws into account. So there's a lot of different competing regulatory regimes that focus on this issue. But that said, that long legal uh, <laughs> uh, contextual comment put out there, there are things you can do. And there are folks who believe that there are hundreds or thousands of Cubans uh, using some type of cryptocurrency or electronic means of transaction. In fact, it'll blow a lot of people's minds that you could buy on the internet today legally, all right, food for your family in Cuba. Forget about crypto for a minute, just focus on this. You can go on the internet right now and log on to certain websites and you could have food delivered to your family in Cuba or your friends in Cuba or your civil society groups in Cuba. And it's done completely online. There are people inside of Cuba who have applications that they're going through and doing certain things that connect to the internet. And they get products, the black market, which is the freest market in Cuba. Um, there's a lot going on there in this space. Fernando, when you were in Cuba the last time, uh, I believe Cuba was still under a two currency system. I think they were still under the uh, convertible dollar and then they went to the peso and they went to the peso. Now they're, now they're fully a peso, they claim, Cuban peso economy, which I believe, by the way, that transition is one of the reasons, in addition to the pandemic and just a repression, all these things coalesced. And in July of this year, you had this massive uprising because there was hunger, there was economic despair. A lot of people in Cuba do not have access to remittances and people just got sick and tired of it and hit the streets. We're gonna to get to that in a minute. But now that Cuba's under the peso and now we have these sanctions on this side, how do you think people who are interested in this space can jump into this without having to worry about the Cuban regime coming down on them or if you're an American or somebody subject to U.S. law, which, by the way, it applies to anywhere you are in the world. Right. In the case of Cuba, it could be an American working in Timbuktu. If you're doing Cuba stuff, you better be careful because the sanctions apply to you no matter where you're at. How do you think we navigate this space and what should the Biden administration, the Congress be looking at? Because the laws right now were designed for the bricks and mortar world, right? Right. This is a totally different space. So yeah. how do you think how do you think we start uh, tackling this problem? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is to understand the problem, right? And, and you touched on it, but you have to understand what this regime is doing in Cuba. And they've done this in a, in a very totalitarian fashion for the past you know, 60 some odd years is that complete control that they have on their population. So after the Soviet Union fell, you had a special period in Cuba, which you know, that's when you had the whole uh, incident with the Barcedos, which people, you know, got on rafts and came to the United States, upwards of, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, actually. And I think about 30,000 of them, if not more, died on that on that trip because of the sh sheer desperation. I mean, you're talking about a country which its number one support is no longer there and they had no other means, right, because they depended on this, uh, on, the, on the Soviet Union. So the, the Cuban government since then has depended a lot on the Cuban American family sending money to Cuba. And they opened that very early on after the special period, which lasted two or three years in the early 90s. Uh, the the regime is very astute. And, and I think that that has to go without saying, like they understand what they're doing full board. 
and they've been trained, right? And you mentioned it before, they've been trained by the Soviets, but they've also been trained by the Chinese and even like the Eastern Europeans, uh, I'm sorry, Eastern Germans with one thing. And, and those are those dollar stores, right? So in those countries and what Cuba adopted was a way that if you change the currency inside the country, right? And if you make basically having a dollar and using it illegal, then you can force the conversion of that dollar and, and you had the convertible peso, but then the regime gets the hard dollars. And you mentioned about the embargo. Well, who, who would want internationally the Cuban peso? It's a worthless currency. It's basically monopoly money at this point because they printed so much of it. In fact, Che Guevara, nobody really knows this. He was the first head of the central bank um, when, when the revolution started. Oh, this, right. is not, this is not a trained economist by no means. So they never really had a good start here. Um, but years later, what they understood is that if we convert those hard dollars, right, into this convertible peso, then the regime can keep it and then trade internationally with that. And you mentioned it before. I mean, they, they buy food and medicine from the United States. Even though there is a, a strict embargo, there is credit that's allowed to Cuba to buy food, right? They don't get that credit with like any other country does where, you know, we have debts with them or they have debts with us. And, you know, that's that's a free transaction. No, they'll have to buy things straight cash, but they they're, they're, they get it sent. And you mentioned before about families ordering food online. They get that sent. So a lot of the things that have come into Cuba have come from these Cuban-American families. And the, the regime has depended on it. So in 2004, they, they instituted the convertible peso, which said, no, the dollar's illegal here. You cannot transact with it. You'll have to convert your dollar into this, CUC that's pegged to the dollar one-to-one, -one, right? And how can you peg something to one-to-one? -one? They just made a decree and said it. There's no value that that kook has, that the dollar has. It's just a matter of, you know, what the government values it for. But again, they keep those hard dollars and they let billions. And I think at one point, it was about $8 billion right before, uh, I think, Trump put an end to the sanction. I'm sorry, to the to the remittances that were going through the central banks. I'm sorry, the um, the government banks that it was upwards of $8 billion a year that was coming in from the United States through families just sending money through Western Union, um, MoneyGram, and, and all these services. So that's that's the central problem, right? Like now the regime gets that money and uses it for their bidding, but the population stuck with this monopoly money. And up until recently now, they've they've converted even that where they made the, they now call it the MCL, the Moneda, Moneda Libre Convertible is what they call it. And that's basically a stable coin in, in the crypto realm where it's it's stable, it's not going to move. The protocol has been designed for that, but it's not on a blockchain. So they can indiscriminately, you know, say that there's more of it. But what they're doing in turn is catching all that hard dollars coming in, all the US dollars, and making sure that people convert that. So it's the same process. Now they've been astute enough to digitize it. So let's let's go back a minute mm -hmm. and sure. figure out if you know, the, the lunacy of the Cuban, I mean, Cuban econ economy there, I mean, and the, the economists there, a lot of them are Soviet trained and those right. that weren't Soviet trained uh, come from that school of socialism, command economies, right. this whole concept, th this to them is like revolutionary talk. You just don't talk about this, this conversation that Fernando and I are having. You have to be very careful having it in Cuba uh, because they'll talk about it. They claim they understand it but it's, it's just illegal. Uh, you, you can't, three people can't meet in Cuba privately to talk about stuff like this. It's the law, you need permission from the government. So this type of free flow that Fernando and I are having, Cubans in Cuba don't have, and they have to find creative ways of doing it. But the economists talk about it. The official state economists talk about it. I don't think they understand it, just like I don't think they understand it here. Um, but when this breaks down for the ordinary Cuban, 
and what this could mean for them. Right. Isn't it possible after 60 some years of command socialist rule that when Cubans decide to, you know, pave their way, because I, I believe they're going to find a new way to deal with this. So we can just skip over so much. Right. Forget about governments. I mean, don't Cubans have an opportunity here to start something without the government? Let's assume we don't have to deal with the with the radical, crazy socialist and the, the militant communist and socialist. Can they just skip over so much and sure. start and start with this? For sure. And, and and that's the thing. Like, you know, anybody listening to this in the U.S. is, you know, has a bank account. You have credit cards. Bitcoin's this new technology. It's like, but why even use it? You know, it's going back to what you said before about the fax machine and the Internet. Well, this fax machine works perfectly. Now I have to learn this new protocol and I don't know where it's going and I don't know where it's coming back. To. So there's a lot of confusion there from people who already have what they need. But for Cubans who don't really have bank accounts, you can leapfrog that technology, you can leapfrog credit cards, you can leapfrog a lot of that in the crypto space uh, because there is the technology out there that's freely accessible. Uh, and with that, what I would say to anybody that's you know wanting to help, you know, El Cubano de APA, which the Cubano de APA means the, the Cubans standing in line. This is not helping the regime, this is not helping any prominent quote unquote political figure. This is helping the person who's standing in that line right now, waiting to get their ration of food uh, for the month. And that is if you do know them, right, and they're a family member or a friend, talk to them about this. This conversation needs to be had with everybody. And once you have that conversation, right, and they maybe start to get in like, you know, Konya, that, that sounds like something that, that, that is revolutionary, then send them $10, send them $20, let them test out that protocol itself. Because I think the application of using this is is much more exciting than the theory of it. The theory of it is amazing. And any freedom-loving person like us adapts to it very quickly because you understand its its value in that theoretical sense. But in the actual practical sense, the day-to-day -day sense, it's it's incredible that you could be on the phone with somebody, right? And they're in Cuba and they have a, a Bitcoin wallet. And you'd be like, okay, well then text me your, your Bitcoin address. You could send them some money. They'll receive it within a half hour. And the transaction is done. There was no intermediary there. There's no Western Union taking a cut. There's not the regime out there taking a cut either, which that's another topic. I mean, we talked about the convertible peso. Not only do they use that as monopoly money, but they, they give a 13% tax. And it might be more at this point. I don't know the exact figure, but that's the tax that's levied against the dollar. There is no tax that can be levied against Bitcoin, except the fees that come from the actual network to process that transaction. So once people really start understanding that element of it and, and start using it, I think you're going to see more Jan uh, July 11th. Because I, what I do feel is, that once people start seeing the value themselves, physically seeing it, like on their phone, seeing you know that twenty dollars start increasing all the time and and, and hodling, um, then I think what it's going to happen. Well, define is, that. Define that. For oh people. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole entire <laughs> the whole entire Bitcoin community is full with all these terms, and hodling basically means holding. Somebody online on a forum spelled it wrong, and everybody adopted to this hodling thing, but it's holding. Hold it, right? So if you hold this, now you're going to be able to then see. A new future, right? So I go back to what we originally talked about when I went to Cuba and that $20 that became $3,500. What can $3,500 mean to a Cuban now, six years later? Um, and that was just 20 bucks. I mean, a lot of these families send, you know, hundreds of dollars every month, right? Because the average Cuban salary is $26, $28, and they're receiving money from their families. So if that money is not in the hands or in the coffers of the regime and is stored by the Cuban himself, by the Cuban that be at, they have a basic savings account that they've never had before that's incrementally growing. And I think that that itself 
will hopefully spur some people to understand what are basic property rights, what what is actually liberty, like what is this whole Bitcoin thing, and how can it be freely done without any government controlling it? They'll get themselves into the rabbit hole, and I think that that's what really needs to happen, where more people have that knowledge. But it's going to come through time. I mean, in the six years, you know, since I did that transaction in Cuba in one of the parks in in La Habana, you know. A lot of things happened beyond me, and and that was amazing to see. Like I was just a drop in the bucket, and that that was what I wanted to do. It wasn't to to create a business. It wasn't to create, you know, that because there. Let me tell you, there's a lot of money in that remittance business, right? Oh my you know, god, you know the, the whole with the remittance thing, Fernando. That, that's something that for me has been a a sore subject. And I'm gonna interrupt you one second here because sure. I think folks need to understand that for every dollar you send to a family member in Cuba, between the cost of goods, if you buy them in official stores, the extortionary fee they used to charge, not just by the remitter company, but by the government, you start slicing and slicing off that you, you some estimates, some economists say for every buck you're sending, you should send another buck. And that's one extreme. Some others say 50 cents of every dollar gets sucked up by some somewhere, someone somewhere down the transaction. And then if you actually go buy in a state store, the markup is obscene. I have a friend down there who had to buy a, a, a cell phone. He's a civil society leader. He's a lawyer, which by the way, in Cuba, if you're a lawyer, you cannot practice independently. If you don't work for a state store, a state law firm, and you're out there lawyering on your own. And by the way, there's a lot of lawyers in Cuba practicing on their own. You're basically breaking the law. He needed a phone and something that would cost you a few hundred bucks, uh, you know, not even a hundred bucks here, $500 wow. for a substandard cell phone in a state store. I mean, it's 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 a racket and i'm not saying western union is a bad person here i think they're they're trying to provide a service but if you look at the numbers of what the regime was taking remember this is a command economy they think they can control everything for you from your health care to where you live to how you're educated everything is controlled by the state including the money so what fernando's talking about here is going to be resisted by those people, by this little group of economists who not, not maybe they do understand it and they know the power of this thing and they're going to make it very difficult because they're making a lot of money because they think they can tell you how to run your life. How do you overcome something like this in a place like Cuba? Can we with the yeah. embargo, with all this stuff? Because because the folks in Cuba are doing it and the black market, every person we talk to in Cuba says, forget about the state store. If you want to eat, if you want to get movies, if you want to see, uh, hear podcasts, uh, we go to the black market. That's where we find everything. How do we do that? I think it's the following. And, and this is where I would tell anybody listening, you know, what I said before about having that conversation and actually transacting and, and, and making it so it's practical to them so they could see it working. But you brought up a great point, And we talked about this, the fact that that black market even exists, like, how can that exist? Wouldn't the regime come down on this and say, oh, hey, you guys can't be transacting without our approval. And the reason why they can't do that is because they need the black market. It's sustaining the current regime. Cuba does not produce anything besides, I mean, doctors that they that they export, but even that they receive the money that's paid to the doctors and then they pay out the doctors. Yeah, it's forced labor. Exactly. It's slavery. So, you know, they have that forced slavery that, that, that's their export. Cuban cigars, which I, listen, I love a good Cuban cigar, but you're not going to run an entire economy based off cigars. So they don't really have anything. So I feel it's almost calling their bluff in a sense. We're saying like, listen, we're going to transact in this. And I think that that's why they passed this, the, this recent uh, regulations law is because they understand that this is happening. Now they want to have their footprint on this and they want to reap some rewards off this, but I think they cannot stop this. So they have to let it happen. 
And if that's the case, then I think it's the pushback from the population to say, no, we're going to do this in a full force because you are not going to be able to stop this. I, you know, you can't really go inside that Bitcoin ledger and see who's who and who's transacting. I mean, there's ways to go around that. And in the United States, that's a very controversial uh, topic with exchanges giving information uh, to the federal authorities. But Cuba does not have that kind of system. So it's almost like the population should push back against it and should transact freely in this and should leverage that black market to do that. Because I think that once you have people that have a benefited from you know a bitcoin transaction where they received it for a piece of good or are just storing it themselves from families or myriad of things because we're not just talking about bitcoin here and i'm a maximalist but nfts uh non-fungible tokens which is the new hot button item in the crypto space basically there's a huge artistic community in cuba and for anybody who's out there and, and not just artists but also uh cubans who are programmers and graphic designers and you know do have that literacy on online and, and can you know make actual things and, and get stuff done there's a complete economy there for them that's global and that they can be a part of without really the government saying anything because at the end of the day that transactions person to person so it's up to you to report that transaction and i know we could get into the legal aspect of it but we're talking about liberty here and i think that yeah. there, there's something to be said about the fact that we'll worry about the hell taxes later like we'll worry about those regulations later let's get this technology into the people's hands um you mentioned before something about biden and, and i i did want to touch about that and and what has ha transpired you know since those uh july 11th protests which i feel were real fundamental uh the biden administration then had a you know, a, a conference with Cuban American leaders, quote unquote, these were people that, I mean, for better, for worse, are people who are aligned with the democratic cause around Cuba. And these are people who are also very anti-embargo, which I understand. And we can get into that topic. But the point is that this group got together and said, you know, remittances are a big issue. And we're going to establish this, quote unquote, working group to look at this issue. Right. And I think I may have tweeted about that that day where I'm like, yeah. There is no reason to do that. Put Bitcoin in the hands of people, and that's your remittance right there. That's that's the, the technology that's really going to change the population more than anything. You mentioned this before because of the fact that there's so much tied to it. There's the whole financial world, the whole you know liberty movement, um, you know, just so much that could be unpacked. So yeah, I do believe people should push forward on this, and people on the island, and the people here, rather than do a working group and and, and try to do this in a bureaucratic fashion. Like I said before, if you know anybody that's in Cuba that you communicate with re regularly, send them a link. You know, have that conversation with them. That's going to go more of a long way than any type of governmental working group here will ever do in Cuba. No, working group, working groups to me are Washington's excuse for doing nothing. And Republicans and Democrats have been doing them for a long time. Right. Cuba, the Cuba has had so many working groups during the Bush administration they had when they published these two uh, biblical size volumes about what to do in Cuba. Uh, we don't have to study this, uh, folks. Uh, there, there's a lot of people on the ground uh, that know, you know, those are the people that need the support. Those are the people on the island, not the people that you see on TV or the politicians, you know, chasing headlines. The people in Cuba are working on this already. And this brings us to an interesting policy pivot, regulatory pivot. It puts Treasury in an interesting bind because uh, if you're following crypto regulation, which I think it should be hands off, but that's, of course, aspirational. But, uh, but but there is going to be regulation, whether we like it or not. I don't think it should be, but it's going to happen. It's already happening, has happened here in the States. 
I don't believe we need to mix both Cuba and this to get permission. There are ways to, under the current general licenses, uh, the current authorizations, there are ways that we can start this by, especially through families, through remittances, through supporting your loved ones, supporting civil society. The things we can do, I think U.S. application developers perhaps need some, uh, some clarity from Treasury Department about what, what can and can't be done. But uh, I don't think Treasury is going to go very far because they're in the middle of a pretty big battle right now with Congress and everyone's trying to figure out what can be regulated and not re forget Cuba for a minute, just crypto space. Uh, look at the, that transportation bill and all these uh, provisions that are in there, which I think are horrible, but uh, there we are. Um, I think the, the, the Bitcoin community, the crypto community is organizing, coalescing a little better, knowing that they're going to have to engage in Washington, because if they don't, uh, they're going to mess this up and forget about working groups. Uh, we're talking about permanent lawyer work for a long time. But if I'm hearing you correctly, Fernando, there's a lot we could do today legally, correctly, especially helping families and uh, independent you know, what they call private businesses, which they're never really not private in Cuba. They've just created that label. Um, right. We receive a lot of phone calls and contacts from Cuenta Propistas, private, private folks in Cuba asking for legal help, which I find amazing. They're calling American lawyers for help with the regulatory super state down there. Uh, but there's space. And maybe the Biden administration and the Congress, after July 11th, we've always said this could be Cuba's 1989 and they can get uh, a new way forward that doesn't involve telegraphing to the world in a working group, which is pretty much nothing. Right. But just just give the give the regulatory guidance, give the clarity that these companies need, so that those that may have a doubt if they can provide that application or not in Cuba, that they could provide it, um, and not be out there telling the enemy. Because I consider the communist party the enemy. Uh, what we're going to be doing? I mean, how do you feel about? having the government regulating this space at all. Right. I, and this is something that I've been kind of struggling with for, for a very long time. And it's, you know, how do you help people? And at the same time, you know, are within the law and like, you know, you, you want to do the right thing. And I think that that's something that anybody who sees people in despair, you don't really think about the law, right? You just want to help. You just want to jump in and help. But here's the thing, and th I think this goes into a bigger topic that's, you know, not really crypto related so much, but you could see how it could be. And that's this framework that I think has been created with this whole remittance market, with the, the market that sends packages to Cuba. Um, you have this entire market that's been created that's perpetuating the current system, right? And I went to actually the protest in front of the White House, uh, the Cubans you know, organized, this was, you know, it, I think it was the, the third or the, the last yeah, week of July. Ago, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I was there, you know, and, and I talked to a lot of people and some of the striking things are the following where people said that, you know, and these are people that have family down there that they send money to every month. And there was a lot of women actually that I spoke that, that, that were doing this. And what they were saying is that we're tired of doing this. We have a, a generation of people that are not working, that don't know work, and they're being supported by their families here. So they almost have to do their due diligence down there and, and have to fight in order for them to get their freedom, where we're not being, we're not going to subsidize that, that regime. But that's kind of what I feel like there's been this subsidy 
subsidizing of that regime and that system for a very long time. And I think the United States is somewhat complicit in that. I think the United States uh, or people living in the United States that have had businesses that deal directly with Cuba are complicit of that. And that's the God honest truth. And I, that's never discussed. I don't really hear that anywhere. But that, that well, you that, know, Fernando, I'm yeah. glad you said it. You, you touch one of the rails. You know, this is uh, in, in this space. People don't talk about this, but Remember, we said at the beginning of the show about embargo, and I, I believe right. there is an embargo, folks. Remember that. But I believe it's an embargo in name only. Why? Well, because it all, there are all these exceptions, and we pit families against pretty much this crisis between governments. And indirectly, it's building up. You know, you, the, Some of this money is ending up in the coffers of the military, which control the majority of the economy. It's ending in the hands of the secret police. It ends up in the hands of Etexa and Etexa Mobile, the only mobile and telecom companies in Cuba owned by the state. And it's a tough place to put families. And then there's this exploitation, right? Political. And how far is enough? And I think you saw at the White House there and the week before at, that, at those protests, people are just tired of it. Yes. They don't want to hear this nonsense anymore about you know, uh, uh, you know, the, I've been hearing about Viva Cuba Libre since the 1980s. You probably, you probably haven't even born back then. I saw President Ronald Reagan go to Miami for the first time in 1983, I think it was. I was 13, right. 14. Uh, he was down there at this place called the, the Little Corner of Texas, La Quina de Texas, down Little Havana. He was, you know, back then he was saying the same speeches that, I'll tell you what, every president since Ronald Reagan has been giving pretty much the same exact speech, every single one of them. And we're still not any closer to resolving this. And I think this space, what, what you're trying to do, what, what this new generation of Cubans uh, has been trying to uh, uh, just grow down there uh, has the most potential, more than any US government program. I mean, this is not a government run program. This is all, these are all folks on their own, working in the free markets, uh, the real free market. And it has the most potential, I think, after July 11th, to help advance the cause of liberty and give people their, their lives back and create some an, independ uh, an independent existence that these folks don't have. And by the way, that's a consciousness issue, right? A lot of people right. in Cuba don't know what it's like to be free because they're living on in that gulag, but they get a taste of it. When you talk to them about this, how do they react when they hear you saying, hey, you don't need the government, you don't need a bank, this is what you need. Well, there, there's a skepticism that comes with that kind of conversation. Number one, it comes from the fact that, you know, what like you're just so in shock and mind blown like you almost have to take a step back and be like no no no, I, I have to like understand this and unravel what you said because and i tell this to everybody i said it before you shouldn't take anybody on face value that talks about this you have to do your own research but i think that what comes out of that is a lot of education number one that people have to go down that rabbit hole and do themselves right you have to take the time to do that and the information's out there and it's becoming out there a little bit more in spanish as well but that's that's number one and also it's it, it comes down to i think for me it's that cause of liberty right like this is introducing property rights to a country that's never really had it because the government can't take your physical wallet right i mean <laughs> i i have a hard wallet right and i recommend anybody who's listening to this look into hard wallets and it's just basically a wallet that's that's not on the internet so you can keep your bitcoin offline but the government can go ahead and take that but remember what i said before if you memorize those 12 words then the government doesn't have anything and they really can't get into your money if they took it physically in that sense right but in terms of you know, the education that needs to happen first and foremost, and people need to get educated themselves on this. And I think it has to happen organically as well. I don't think there's an organization that can come down there and say, 
oh, you know, you have to, you know, use Bitcoin because it's going to be the best thing in the planet. No, I mean, there's other options, there's other cryptocurrencies, but people have to come to that conclusion themselves. And once that happens, and in the conversations that I've had with people, you know, after they get over that hump, right, of like, what is this? Whoa, then they start talking about it. You know, I had the reason that I actually went to Cuba, and a lot of people don't really know this, is because I made contact with an anarchist uh, liberty group out there. And they, <laughs> these guys were like hardcore, like, anarchists like but they were part of the liberty movement because they were uh, anarcho-capitalists yeah, and yeah. there was a, a write-up on them in um uh, vice uh and i was just curious and i actually reached out to them on facebook and i wanted to donate i was like you know can i send you some bitcoin right now and that alone i think that's something that people can do and there's and you know of many organizations including some that you're involved with that would also appreciate that level of support right that they can receive a Bitcoin yeah. transaction. They want the knowledge. They, they want the knowledge and they just want to be left alone and they want to hear from people. You're, you're, you're a gutsy guy. I don't think they'd let me on the island because right. of, of the regime is, uh, well, they're not a fan. But yes, there are people there. And, it's, and I'm glad you mentioned this whole movement because it's one of these spaces where I tell folks, I, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, right. a progressive or a conservative. In fact, this coalition is one of the one of the uh, the it's a, it's a left right movement it's, it's a freedom movement you have people from we may not agree on on certain policy or the role of government but when it comes to freedom it's 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 a passion that everyone feels and they want to help these people and they want to empower them and Cuba is a very difficult space to do this and you've done it uh, your organization is doing it. Uh, it's it's you took the step that uh, you know Alex Gladstein over with the Human Rights Foundation. Right. I had asked him about Cuba uh, uh, a while back, and and it's he said this before many times publicly. He just says just got to start somewhere. You got to just get in there and do what you're doing, Fernando, and and continue and go piece by piece. It they people will catch on to this, right. especially in a closed society like Cuba that has lived like like Fernando said, no private property. There's no private property rights in Cuba yet. Well, there are, but the state says there are not. Right. Uh, the the private you can't hand your you can't pass your home down. They can confiscate a crypto wallet if you let them. Uh, there's a lot of things. Well, technically they can't cap. They can't technically uh, confiscate your wallet, but who knows? They'll it, these people are so evil. Maybe they'll figure out a way. Right. But it doesn't right, matter. Sure. It doesn't matter. You got to get in there and do it. You're doing it. As we come to the end of the program, we're going to have you back because we've got a, a lot of things we want to talk about again. You already gave a little bit of advice to the U.S. government that's taking a look at this uh, project moving forward. What do you want to leave anyone here in Washington that's involved with Cuba policy to think about in this particular space beyond get beyond the working group? What else sure. can they what What else can they do? And then I'm going to send people to your organization because I think they got to support them and figure out ways to kind of build product. You're, you have an open platform here. We're also going to invite you back if you want. You, you have a uh, we have a training platform where we open it up to freedom lovers and liberty warriors in Latin America. We can do this in Spanish and English and uh, maybe introduce people to some of these concepts you're talking about that are part of the network. But right now, for the people in Washington, uh, what do you want to leave them with? What's your message on Cuba and crypto and 
where do we got to go next? Right. Uh, what, what I would say is the following, and I think that this has to be a little bit more humanized to the point that people really understand what I'm about to say right now, is that the Cuban people are a lot of things, but they're not stupid. And I don't mm. talk about the regime. I'm talking about the actual Cuban people. You know, my parents were exiled here. My father was a political prisoner in Cuba, right? They had, people have to figure out their ways. There's a lot of people right now who are political prisoners who probably served longer. There's a lot of people who've had atrocities done to them and their families, but they figure out a way. Right. And, and I think through time, that's what the Cubans do. You just it's called that internal bit. Right? Like you yeah. want to resolve something. And what I will tell, you know, anybody who's in politics in the United States hearing this is that they will figure this out. Cubans themselves will figure it out. Forget about the regime. So how do you go about supporting those people that are the ones that are going to be the gutsy ones? Because I'm in that blockchain of a lot of other and bigger people and a lot of people who are doing things now. Right. I'm just one little link in that. But how can you support all those other people that are going to come after that, that are going to be interested in this? And, you know, maybe they're, they are hearing this. I would say there's like four or five gatos that are probably listening to this right now, right? <laughs> the little cats, right? That's what Cubans call each other. Um, I would say to them, you know, to, I'm sorry, to any politicians, like really listen to these people. You know, you want to have a working group, but invite people who are actually a part of this and are actually a part of this movement down in Cuba, right? You can go, and it's not even that difficult. Go on Telegram, uh, on the app, go on WhatsApp. These these groups were created not even by me. They were created organically on, a, on their own after I went. Whether somebody saw a story or not, I don't even know. It's just something that they did on their own. So you have that. So if you can focus on those people themselves, then I think you can resolve the Cuba situation because it will resolve itself internally and without any type of government intervention from the United States, which is what the people are calling for, right? People in Cuba want in intervention from the US, but this is the best possible intervention that's nonviolent. And I think that's going to lead to something in the future. And along with that, I would say this, and this is to any politician, you really want to fix a lot of the problems that are going on with Latin America, right? There's a lot of immigration problems. There's despots, you know, everywhere from Nicaragua to, I'm sorry, to Argentina, <laughs> you know, like there, there's a lot of issues going on in the region and in, in, in the Southern hemisphere. But to, rem to remedy that, if Cuba fixes its own internal problems, I think you'll see a lot of those problems dissipate because people need to remember that Cuba is that first domino needs to fall. They created a lot of these leftist movements throughout Latin America. And if this move, if this regime falls, if this communist regime falls, I don't think you'll see a lot of other communist regimes in the area or socialist regimes still standing. So yeah, this goes right. bigger, this goes bigger than us. This goes bigger than even Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is the actual, you know, it's the actual a bullet in the gun. It's it's gonna be the thing that's gonna be most effective. I feel, and I don't want to equate Bitcoin with violence, but you know what no, I mean. No, 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 no. I know what you're saying. No, it's not violent. I mean, in fact, I mean, look, that this is a a great place to uh, to start wrapping up because sure. one of the reasons why we founded this organization um, almost, I mean, eight years ago now, is to reorient how we think about problems in the hemisphere and other places where we put in focus uh, the defense of fundamental rights, free markets, and the rule of law and how these things move together. And if you want to stop things like illegal immigration, by the way, people don't want to leave their homeland, all right? No. People don't, don't like to do that, whether if it's in Cuba or Mexico, or El Salvador, Guatemala, you name it. People want to stay home. But right. guess what? If they don't have economic opportunity, if they don't have property rights, they don't have prosperity, if they can't have right to contract respected, I'd pick up and leave. I mean, I don't know where we're going to go. You know, my grandfather was Cuban. He died. Um, not too long ago, he was in his 90s. And one of the things he, he left me with, and he taught me a lot as I was growing up, he was a lawyer in Cuba. And he says to me, look, I had somewhere to go, right. all right? 
I didn't want to go, but I had somewhere to go. The people of America took us in. They made us feel welcome. We learned English. We gave back. But you have nowhere to go. All right. This is it. This is the place. You guys are the champions of freedom. If you want to solve problems like drug trafficking and horrible things reaching our, our borders, we got to start doing work in these places, places like sure. Cuba. And I encourage people, this is going to sound a little, it's going to shock some of my friends when they hear this. Uh, I encourage people to take responsible travel to Cuba. There's ways to go. I call it liberty travel to do the sort of thing Fernando was doing, uh, which there are exceptions for travel for that. It is, and we should be down there. Those who can go help people understand this sort of thing, because he's right. This is the crown jewel, by the way, my friends, of the social international left. It's Cuba. And the Russians are not going to give it up without a fight, nor the Chinese. Uh, but we don't want them here either, right? We want those, those people out of our hemisphere if they're going to cause trouble. Right. And why not find a way to get the liberty struggle? You, you, you fight this fight in Cuba. You empower those people. And all these other countries are going to follow. Would you agree with that, Fernando? A, a thousand percent. I think you saw it in, in Venezuela recently with their protests. I mean, it was very similar to what Cuba had. In fact, they actually had more people on the streets. That, you know, about a million I saw at one point. This was in 2018. But there was no real follow through. Right. And I think that that's the issue. Right. It's like these people will come together. They will organize themselves. They will leverage the Internet. They will find all the means to do this. But what can we do here, right? What, how can we support it? Because even this July 11th movement, to, to my estimation, I feel it's dying off. I mean, a lot of reasons yeah. why. I mean, it's not even in the headlines because of Afghanistan and all that. But at the end of the day, the, the, the people need to have a sustainable movement, right? And it's hard to sustain freedom in, in these tyrannies. So the only way to do that is by doing those person-to-person -person connections, right? And like you mentioned, those responsible travels where you can actually meet with people. Like I, when I went to Cuba in 2015, and it's the only time that I went, because like you, I don't know if I'm allowed back after all this. Um, <laughs> if, if, if people had more of those interactions, I think it would go much of a long way. Because remember, these it's like word of mouth, like anything else. If I tell somebody, that person's hopefully going to tell two or three other people. And that's how you see these movements getting into. And then I think down the road, and I think you mentioned this about your grandfather said, you know, as far as the US, where do we turn to? We don't have anywhere to turn to. This is the final place of freedom, right? This is the final last vestige of freedom. But for Cuba, you know, for Cubans getting here, which, you know, I don't want to get into wet for dry foot and all that, but I think that there should be a platform. And this is what I want to work with in the future. And, I, and anybody who's listening to this, you know, I'm going to, I want to put a call out there because I think that this is something that could be beneficial is to create a online platform for Cubans and Cuban Americans to talk about these things, right? In a way that's not censored and you can have free flowing conversations. So even if people can't get down there, there are people who are online and can have these conversations. So, you know, if there's any programmers or any, you know, rich people listening to this that really want to do something <laughs> good, you know, I'm willing to have that conversation. And I think that that will go a longer way to create almost that, you know, organization online, that Cuba online that people can turn to um, because there will be a vestige of freedom there. Yeah, and with Fernando, um, as we wrap this up, I'll tell you what, why don't we just go ahead and just start? We'll, we'll just get started on, a, on at least a telegram room. And I want to encourage people uh, how they get in contact with Fernando VR with Bitcoin Cuba. It's at Bitcoin Cube, I think is, is, the, uh, is the hashtag, right. is, yep. the, uh, is the address. Um, is there any other way you think that uh, people can contact you? And we'll include some links in the podcast, but we're going to go ahead and create this Telegram group. And there's a bunch of other ones. Encourage people to join. How else can they contact you? 
Right. Um, well, I've, my my uh, Twitter handle is at Fern Villar, um, and like you mentioned, at Bitcoin Cuba. And I think that to contact and, and, and to want to work, I'm very open to it. In the past six years, I've done a lot of this by myself, and it's just having those conversations and and, and trying to put this out there as, as, as a possible solution for the Cuban population. Um, but I think that anybody who wants to help has to do this in a very altruistic method and realize that there really isn't much to gain monetarily from this, you know, to help these That's people. Right. And, right. and for now. How, for now, right? And that was a struggle that I had going into this, right? Because, and I mentioned this before, if I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do this with no funding, it's out of my own pocket, I'm, I'm really trying to put something out there into the world that could be, uh, you know, a little bit of hope for these Cubans. But I think if something like that is funded in a better, in a better way or, or more direct, I think that that's something that will definitely help that freedom movement in Cuba, freedom movement throughout Latin America. So again, if anybody wants to reach out and we, we could do this, you know, I, and I think it's important to have open, transparent conversations, you know, have a Zoom conversation with a bunch of people who are like-minded and come up with an actionable plan and let's do it because at the end of the day, like Bitcoin, nothing can really stop us if we did this. Well, we've been talking to Liberty Maximalist and Bitcoin entrepreneur, uh, Fernando Villar. Uh, out in New York and New Jersey, Fernando, it's um, it's been a pleasure having you on the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. I hope you'll come back, and it's a hope uh, you'll consider us a home. And however we can help you, let us know. We we look forward to having you uh, join join us again. Thank you, Jason, and a placer mio. And what I would love to say to you is, please continue that fight. Um, I've seen how you're battling online all the time and what's what's amazing about that is that that's the true battleground right now this is not going to be you know bullets flying in the air this is going to be tweets flying in the air and you're going to see a lot of people coming around and i think if you go online if you go on twitter and you follow jason if you haven't already you'll see that he's fighting that good fight and it's inspiring to see re-inspired my uh view for this because for a while there i was a little dejected thinking like you know, this is beyond me. Maybe I bit off more than I can chew here, but knowing that there are people like you and, and, and hopefully others that can come together around this, I think we're going to do something tremendous for, for, for the cause of liberty in Cuba. So yeah. I really well, thank appreciate you. Sir. you. Well, you know, there, there, Fernando, there's, there's a whole generation of uh, people on the island that I haven't, you know, these are people I consider my brothers now and sisters and people who, uh, unfortunately, some of them are, have been locked up uh, after the July 11th roundup. But these are people who are on the front lines. They don't get to travel. They don't get to go anywhere. They depend on folks like you, people out here to have their back. And uh, it's great to see a new generation engage in this space. Uh, we, we need it. And uh, we look forward to having you back. And we will set up these rooms, folks. Support the effort for freedom in Latin America. Start with Cuba. Help these people out. They need it. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. Mm -hmm.